Thank you, Phil. That's Phil Black. Do you all know Phil Black? You don't know Phil Black. Phil Black is Jane Raspberry's father, and he came all the way from Memphis to play that song for you. Just for that. He didn't want to see grandkids, didn't want to spend time with, but he came to play that. No, Phil, we are greatly appreciative for you doing that this morning and just stepping in and playing with the praise team as well. So turn your Bibles, if you would, to First um, Thessalonians, and uh, we're going to just journey through chapter 1 of First Thessalonians, and next week, uh, special guest for you, actually one of our elders will be preaching next Sunday morning, Nathan Stevens, and, uh, and so I'm going to actually hang out in Children's Church next week and uh, encourage our kids, but um, uh, so, and then after that I'll get back into Genesis, but this week I been really struggling actually in putting together a message for today and because I, I wrestled with do I do I introduce Abraham or do I not and I just had been reading first Thessalonians and came to this place because I kept asking myself you know we're coming off of Easter and what a great weekend last weekend was as we had you know over 500 people in attendance here we had uh, five people uh, raise their hands saying that they were trusting Jesus for the very first time last week we had uh, two ladies come forward uh, as candidates for baptism and uh, and it was just a really awesome weekend um, last weekend but you come off of that and you begin to ask yourself some questions about okay so now what and what I've realized and maybe you've realized this too is in our life our life is full of that question our life is full of the now what kind of question. You spend your life actually asking yourself that question. We, my family and I went on vacation a few months ago, and of course, we, Carrie had spent all this time packing the kids' stuff, and uh, my job is to find a way to get it all on, in the car so that we can go. And, uh, and so I did that, and we're in the car, we're driving to Orlando, Florida, because again, we are unapologetic about loving Disney World. And, uh, and so we were headed down there, and of course, we, we have all that preparation, we had all that time, and we're in the car, hanging out together as a family, and of course, we get to the house that we've rented, and of course, the first thing my kids ask when we get there is, now what? Now what do we get to do? You've, you've packed our stuff, you've put us in the car, you got us here, now what? And we, we got them occupied a little bit, and we actually go to the park, one of the parks the next day, and of course what happens, they come to the end of that day, and they've got the question of, okay, now what do we get to do? What do we get to do now, and what's next? And that becomes just this resounding question in all of our lives is that, now what? We, we sort of have all this anticipation that builds towards things, and then once that's over, we're asking ourselves the question of, now what are we going to do? And, uh, and it's played out in our lives. I mean, where students are and children are getting ready to finish out a school year, and they're uh, really uh, ready for that break. But what's going to happen is they're going to get out of school, and they're going to be home for like a day, and they're going to go, well, now what are we going to do? What are we going to do now? Now what can I do? Now what? Now what? And that question just builds and builds and builds. And then, you know what? They grow up and they wind up going, you know, getting into high school, which is a good thing. And they graduate from high school, which is even better. And they get out of high school and they're asking themselves the question, now what am I going to do? Am I going to go to college? Am I going to go, uh, you know, or just go get a job? Or am I just going to mooch off of my parents for the rest of my life, of which us as parents are going, no, you're going to go get a job at least. But they're asking that question of now what? They graduate from college and they ask that question. You've asked the question like I've asked the question. Now, what am I going to do? And we come off of Easter Sunday. We come off of celebrating that, that huge event in history that defines our faith. 
And we've got to ask ourselves the question, now what? Now what? Did what we celebrated last week, did that moment in history that defines our faith, what are we going to do with that? Are we just going to slip back into the same routines? Are we going to slip back into the same way of life and the same, at times, the same just withdrawal from the rest of culture? Or are we going to go forward and, and let our faith lead out with a resound, as a resounding symbol to let people know that we're serious about Jesus and we're serious about the mission that he has placed us on? You see, two weeks ago, I talked about how we've been empowered, uniquely empowered, to take Jesus to the world. Last week, I spoke about why I believe what I believe, walking through a little bit of John chapter 21 and looking at the different disciples. And today, I want to talk to us about now what are we going to do? What is it that we're going to do with this faith that we have or this faith that we even say we have? Because I'm convinced, like many other people are convinced, that for a lot of Christians, we're just simply satisfied to sit in the pew and not get out in the world and let our faith in Jesus lead out as a resounding symbol to make a difference in the culture in which we find ourselves living. We instead have chosen to withdraw from the culture to the point where to some people it's, it's like we get home from work, we close our garage doors, we're not going to hang out and visit with our neighbors, we're not going to try to impact people's lives and we're not going to try to get into the lives of people who are hurting and broken and make a difference in the name of Jesus. And a lot of times we don't do it because you know what? To enter into that kind of relationship with people where you're there for hurting and broken people takes a lot of our time and some of us are not willing to give that time. But I want to ask that question of now what are you going to do with this faith that you say you have? What are you going to do with the reality that Jesus did come back to life, that the tomb is empty and he's coming back for us one day and he has sent us out and he has given us a purpose and he has given us a mission. And, and a little bit of what I want to talk about in that just comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Because in 1 Thessalonians you have this beautiful picture of a group of people that answer the question of now what are we going to do? And it doesn't come out like that, but you've got to dig into it a little bit. I'll back up, in Acts chapter 17, you don't need to necessarily turn there. Um, but in Acts chapter 17, you're introduced to the church at Thessalonica. Paul and Silas find themselves in Thess Thessalonica, much like they did in a lot of other cities. And in Acts chapter 17, it tells us that they, as usual, spent three Sabbaths in a row teaching in the synagogues, basically arguing from Scripture, proving that Jesus is the Christ. And so what they would do is they'd walk into a town, they would get to the Jewish synagogue, and they would get to that place where they were teaching and proclaiming Jesus. And they would lead out and do that week in and week out and week in and week out. And so it says in, in Acts 17 that in Thessalonica they did that for three straight weeks. They walked in and they talked about Jesus with the people. And what happened in Thessalonica is that there, there became this group of followers of Jesus Christ. 
And the scripture tells us in Acts 17, it says there's basically three groups of people who began to follow Christ as a result of Paul and Silas' ministry. There one group were Jewish people who were at the synagogues. They were the ones who were steeped in religious tradition, who had been taught religious tradition basically since they were old enough to listen. And it was just kind of ingrained in them. But it says in Acts chapter 17 that some of those Jewish followers became followers of Jesus as a result of Paul and Silas' ministry. That's the first group of people. The second group of people were um, God-fearing. It tells us this. They says that they are God-fearing Greeks who became followers of Jesus as a result of Paul and Silas' ministry in Thessalonica. The third group of people that Acts chapter 17 mentions is women. Okay, so they're identified separately. So there's three groups of people in Acts 17 in Thessalonica who begin to form this little church called, that Paul then writes a letter to called Thessalonians. And he's writing this letter to them. Now what happened is, after that little group was formed and they became maybe a little bit of a bigger group and a little bit of a bigger group, they began to impact, they began to impact culture around them to the point that the Jewish people were threatened by the movement of this new local body of believers. And so they began to be threatened by that, and so they began to complain to those in authority and basically, there was a guy named Jason, and we assume that it's in Jason's home that this group of believers um, has been meeting. And so what happens is they take Jason, they take these other believers that they found in Jason's home, and they drag them before the authorities and basically give them a slap on the wrist. But it's one of those things where we, you begin to know that, number one, they influenced the culture around them because people were threatened by them. And number two, they were willing to endure whatever persecution would come their way, even though they were very young in their faith in Jesus Christ. And since that happened, what they did next, and you see at the end of that description of Thessalonica in Acts 17, is they basically snuck Paul and Silas out of town, and we find them next in Berea. And what do Paul and Silas do in Berea in Acts chapter 17? They show up at the synagogue, and they begin proclaiming Jesus to all the people in the Jewish synagogues again. And so Paul doesn't spend a great deal of time with the Thessalonians. He doesn't spend a great deal of time in their church. And of course, what would happen in, that, in the midst of that is he would grow very concerned because you're talking about a small group of believers and a young group of believers who weren't necessarily steeped in a lot of church tradition. And the fear would be that they would turn away from the teaching of Paul and Silas. That they would turn away from the gospel. After all, in, in Galatians, that's what began to happen in, in Galatia, in the church at Galatia. And Paul writes them and says, I can't believe how quickly you're abandoning the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that's not true of the Thessalonians. And Paul writes back to this church. And in writing back to this church, I believe he gives us a little bit of a picture of the what now for us. The what now, that, that question that we need to answer, what now? What is it now that you've, you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? You believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You believe that he was buried in the tomb. You believe he rose from the dead. You believe the grave is empty. You believe he ascended into heaven. You believe he's coming back to get us. So what now? What now? Is it just, okay, that's great, and that's this part of my life, and now I'm going to go on with the rest of my life, and I'm just going to wait for the return of Jesus sort of in this part of my life, but I'm going to carry on with business as usual here. Is that what we're supposed to do? And what I would say is, when you look at the first chapter of Thessalonians, as we read through it, you begin to see that there are some things 
that we can do in anticipation of the second coming of Jesus Christ that fills us with purpose, that fills us with just this sense of, I've, I do have work that I need to do in my life. And it's not just, I'm just going to carry on for business as usual in my life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ defines our faith, and that should send us out. It should send us out. Let's read a little bit about the Thessalonians from 1 Thessalonians. We'll pick up in, in verse 2. We're going to go 2 through 10. Okay? And I'll, I'll make comments along the way like I normally do. We give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God, of our God and Father. Let me just, let me kind of give you a little picture of, of what's happening in this. So Paul, as he is praying, I don't know if you, you pray like this, but I love Paul's prayers. When he gives you a glimpse of what he's praying throughout his epistles, man, he is praying some intense stuff, way different than the way we pray, by the way. Way different. You know, we, we pray in kind of a way of, we have this prayer list, this sick list of people, and we pray. Paul is praying for the souls of people, the lives of people, their spiritual walk. He's praying like, I, Father, I want them to know you in the depth of who you are and the depth of your love. And that's the kind of way Paul prays. And it's so different than the way we pray. But what's happening in Thessalonians, as he writes this, he says, I'm mentioning you in my prayers. I'm praying over you. And this is what he says, though. And I'm bearing in mind. So I'm praying for you. And, and I'm, these things are coming to my mind about you. And so I'm praying for you. And as I'm praying for you, I am being reminded of these things that are true of you. And basically, it's, it's this word of encouragement to them, them that he says, I, I, these are the things that I know about you, and when I'm praying for you, I'm, I'm, these things are coming to my mind, and really, he doesn't say it this way, but he's just, that's a big deal, and he's celebrating that in their life. That's why he brings it up. He brings it up, and he mentions these three things. He says, you know, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, the labor of love, steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God our Father. He says this, knowing brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Verse 5, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with hopeful conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation. We just described that a little bit. They come to faith in Jesus Christ, that tribulation. And what happens? This small band of brothers, this small brethren that's gathered in Jason's home, gets dragged before the authorities. New believers in Christ, new believers, okay? Young Christians, baby Christians, just became followers of Jesus, and they're dragged before the authorities, Talk about coming to faith, the gospel coming, and you believing the gospel in much tribulation. I think that's a really big deal. That's a really big deal and how they still stood firm in that. And Paul's just kind of encouraging them with that. You, um, you received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. 
and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. What a great description. And in this, I really believe Paul is answering that question for us of, so now what? Now what? And let's, let's just look at it. In verse 3, he, I, I, he gives us three things in sp- specifically that he mentions about the church at Thessalonica. Three things that describe the believers in this church. And he said, remember, this is what he's saying. I'm praying for you, and these are the things that I'm remembering about you. These are the things that come to mind as I'm praying for you and praying for your faith and praying for everything else about you. I remember these three things, and the first one is this. I bear in mind your work of faith. Your work of faith. And you know, it's one of those things is we've, we've gotten to the place a lot in our, in our life, in our theology, that we've wanted to separate, completely separate faith and works. Now before you start throwing stones, hear me out with this, okay? So we've completely separated it because we, we know... We know in our lives that we are justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Agreed? We agree. Yeah, there's a few of you that agree with that. The rest of you are still lost. So that's, that's what we believe. I am justified by faith alone in Christ alone, and that's it. But we've gotten to the place where we've so wanted to separate that from the works piece that we don't ever talk about works. And so we, we've gotten to the place a little bit in our theology and our doctrine where we've so separated them we don't think they work together at all. One description I heard is a guy, this goes back hundreds of years ago, he had a, a, a rowboat. And in the rowboat, he had two oars. And on one of the oars, it said faith. And on one of the oars, it said works. And what happened is there were people, of course, who just wanted faith. So they would take one oar and they would start rowing. And that's all. And what happens? Well, you just start spinning around. And if you just get to the other side of it and you just want works then you do the same thing. You just spin in the opposite direction. Those two things go together in our life. And what happens is we've got to find, and it's so important that Paul mentions this in Thessalonians, he says your work of faith. We know in the first service, Phil Black mentioned Ephesians chapter 10, or 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand for us so that we would walk in them. That's a little combination of a lot of versions, Phil. I think you said it much better than I did. But the reality of it is that we are, not, we are saved, yes, by faith alone, in Christ alone, but we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, for good works, which God has prepared beforehand for us that we would walk in them. And see, one of the great pictures in the Thessalonian church is that you find that these people have this work of faith. They are living out. Let me just explain to you what it means. It just simply means that you are living out what you say you believe. A work of faith is just simply working out what you say you believe about Jesus. Because, friends, if you say that you believe in Jesus, if you say that you're a follower of Jesus, if you say you love Jesus, then guess what? Your life should be constantly being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And let's face it, Jesus isn't the guy that you really think he is. Because Jesus wasn't a high church. He wasn't a religious individual. Jesus was a get in the trenches and get dirty, building relationships with sinners and tax collectors, people that we would shun away from in our life. But when you talk about your work of faith, in James, 
the end of James chapter 2, I think it is, um, our Lord's brother is writing this, and he talks about the idea of faith and works and how they go together. And he basically says, listen, if you come upon a person that's hungry or in need of clothes, and you say, basically, bless you, go in peace, you've done nothing for them. The idea of faith and works going together means that when you hear of somebody in need, what do you do? You step in and become somebody who meets that need. So when you find somebody, when you come across somebody who needs clothing, is in need of clothing, what do you do? You start to empty out your closet. And for most of us, we have plenty of clothes to spare. But that's the reality of actually living out what we say we believe. And if we find somebody who's hungry, we find somebody who's thirsty, we don't just pray over them. That's a little bit of a cop-out, by the way, is just, well, let's pray together. Great, cool. No, I mean, Jesus brought this person into your life. He didn't bring them into your life so that you could just pray over them. And faith and works going together means you're going to step in and help make a difference in this person's life for the glory of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Your work of faith, the Thessalonians, Paul is bearing to mind their work of faith. I don't know what all that looked like, but I imagine that they lived out what they said they believed. And they, they took and they were looking at the life and ministry of Jesus Christ in the little window that they had been taught it, and they tried to figure out what that means for them in their daily life. And I'm going to live out this faith that I say that I have, and I'm going to do it every day day. It's a work of faith. I think of the now what. I think of the, the now what question in our life, and I go, part of the answer to the now what is live out what you say you believe. Live it out in the lives of people. Build relationship with, relationships with hurting and broken people because that's what Jesus did. Build relationships with people who don't look like you because that's what Jesus did. Build relationships with people who don't believe like you believe because that's what Jesus did. Live out what you say you believe. I was reading in another book um, recently that was describing what the, the big phenomenon that happens in Christian life and Christendom in general is that especially for those that are coming to Christ as, say, teenagers, college students, and then adults, which there's a good many in this room, by the way. The statistics that I used to hear are so not true in the life of this body. You know, you used to hear that, you know, 90% of the people that come to Christ come to Christ before the age of like seven or something like that. But I have found in a, in a room that that statistic is not as true in this body. Just, I'm just saying this body and the people that I've come in contact with. But the reality of it is you start thinking about the work of faith and the truth is most people, when they come to Christ as a teenager, as a college student, as an adult, what they have a tendency to do is withdraw from their former friends, right? And they get into their little church huddle now. And it's like they've completely alienated the, the lost people that used to be around them, and they've placed themselves in this little security zone, this little comfort zone, where now all of a sudden I'm not going to be able to influence and make a difference with the people that I used to hang out with. And some reason, we've, we've sort of got that backwards. Yes, they need the fellowship of the believers, but not to the point that they alienate the people that they used to hang out with. Because, friends, the peop they now have the potential to have the greatest impact on the people they used to hang out with. And a lot of times, by just stepping back and withdrawing and alienating from them, we've just portrayed that we think we're better than they are. We've gotten to the place where we want to look down at them 
And I know there's special circumstances in the midst of all that, but the truth is, when you think about that work of faith, that's part of it, living out what you say you believe in the context in which you find yourself living. The second thing that he mentions in verse 3, talking about the now what. So the first now what is live what you say you believe. The second now what is this labor of love. What a great description, the idea of a labor of love for Jesus Christ. Do you know, I mean, like, I don't know if you're like a romantic at heart, but we truly are in the greatest love story ever written. I mean, that's why we quote the greatest verse or the most famous verse in all of Scripture. We did it last week. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. We quote that verse. We think of that verse. It's a love story. He loved you enough to send Jesus to die on the cross for your sin. And the idea is, and what, what Paul is writing to the Thessalonians about, is he said, now I'm recalling to mind in you, not just the work of faith, but your labor of love. Think about your labor of love for Jesus. It looks, it looks different. I know. I remember several years ago, I was, my wife and I, we, had, we didn't have kids. This goes back to before we had kids, but I was building um, the first house that, that I had built for us. And it was just, it wasn't a big house, but it was, it was a really nice home for us. And, but I spent hours and hours and hours, and my dad did too, and my father-in-law did too, but I'd spent hours and hours and hours building this house. And uh, to the point where our neighbors kind of started to take notice, like, he's there probably a little later than he should be kind of thing. And, um, one of our neighbors came over one day as I was there. I was by myself and just kind of working on some last-minute things before we finished up. And she came over, and she looked at me, and she says, this really truly is a labor of love for you. And I'll never forget that. I mean, that's probably 10 years old, and, 10 years old now that that woman said that to me. But that's the idea, really, of even our relationship with our spouses is a lot of the things we do are a labor of love to provide for, to care for, to provide shelter for our family and our spouses. I mean, that's the idea, especially as a man. That's what we're talking about. But you've got to translate that into what's your labor of love for Jesus? Do you, do you have a labor of love? Are there things in your life that the motivation for why you do them is because you love Jesus? I mean, I hear it a lot. I hear a lot of things from people that say, I love God or I love Jesus, but I want to ask you the question today of the now what in your life is the now what driven out of your love for Christ? Is it driven out of your love for for Jesus Christ, what he has accomplished for you, the relationship that he has brought you into with the Heavenly Father. Are there things in your life that you can honestly say, this is a labor of love for Jesus? There, there's multiple ways that can look, but, but friends, I'm just asking the question, do you have something that you labor for simply because you love Jesus? Not because it's your favorite thing to do. Not because you feel like you're called to do it. Not even because you feel like you're gifted to do it. But simply because you know that this is important to Jesus, and because it's important to Jesus, you will serve or do and accomplish this because it's a labor of love. Sometimes that might be entering into that messy relationship with somebody who's broken and hurting because you know that's what Jesus wants you to do. It's not easy and it's going to consume a lot of your time, but guess what? It becomes that labor of love. And as you do it out of a labor of love for Christ, you begin to do it out of a labor of love for that person. But the question that you've got to ask yourself, do you have things in your life that you are doing as a labor of love for Christ? You don't have, sometimes you don't have any other motivation. You don't have any other desire to do it other than I love Jesus and I know that he has placed this in front of me 
and I will do it as a labor of love for him. I love that description in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 of the people of Thessalonica, that they have this work of faith and they have this labor of love. Labor of love, this idea of they're working this out. Labor, I mean, labor is not easy. Labor is not cheap. Labor is intense. Labor is hard work. You know this. We all, we've all lived it before. And what it's saying is you are there and you are in the trenches laboring for your Savior. What a great testimony. What a great way to answer the question of now what? Put things in your life that are just there as a labor of love for Christ. It could be serving in children's ministry. It could be serving in happy faces. It could be using gifts maybe that you have in the praise team and sacrificing time to lead in worship. It could be, again, God brings a broken person into your life and you begin to be an instrument of change in their life. But what the goal is, is this is a labor of love for your Savior and Master. The third thing that he mentions in verse 3 in the midst of this is the steadfastness of hope. The steadfastness of hope, he says. You ever think about that, that idea of being steadfast? And then you think of the word hope. You see, I define the word hope, and I've said it before, and I remind you, I define the word hope because we're talking about hope in Jesus. I define that as confident expectation. You see, it's not like we use the word hope. You know what I'm saying? I hope you're feeling better. I hope that, that I hope, I hope, I hope. No, when you're talking about with Jesus, there's this confident expectation in that word hope. Like, I know it. I know. Why? Because Jesus... I mean, because this hope is anchored in Jesus, and because it is, I have this confident expectation that it will come to pass. But then the second part of that, and the first word that's used to describe that, is the word steadfast. That that idea of being steadfast, to be, uh, you're anchored, and you're rooted, and you're established in this, you're immovable with it. Nobody's going to take that hope away from you. And you think about that with the Thessalonians, by the way. Remember, a young church... This group of people had come to faith in Christ. Those three groups, the Jewish people, they they came to faith in Christ. The Greek people, they turned to God. And then the women, they came to faith in Christ. And they're young in their faith, but yet Paul is talking about them and he describes them as being steadfast in relationship with Jesus Christ. The fact that they were hauled before the authorities, given a slap on the wrist and it said given a pledge of some kind, that did not keep them from their faith in Jesus Christ. It did not wear them down. It did not grind them down, but they were steadfast and they were immovable in the hope they had in Jesus Christ. And I wonder for us, I mean, do you have that kind of steadfastness of hope that drives you, that that really gives you and helps you with that perseverance of you're going to hold unwavering to this? And whatever it is, sometimes it's just going to be holding unwavering to what he has called you to do. Because why? Because it was called in Jesus Christ. And that's not going to be easy. The Thessalonians called to a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, called in the context of planting this small church, and yet here they are, they're saying you're steadfast, you're immovable in your hope in Jesus Christ. 
You see, we live in a world where we're, we're not steadfast people anymore. We're not immovable people. I myself would describe me some days on an emotional roller coaster. Not that I have doubts, but I'm not nearly as immovable as I know I need to be when you're talking about God calling us to do something. And the reality of it is when you talk about the now what, we've got to get to the place where we are anchored in our hope in Jesus Christ. And we are, yes, we are moving forward in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And you want to talk about the now what is I'm going to pursue Jesus with everything that I have. The now what is that I believe faithful is he who called me and he will bring it to pass. And that's what he says at the end of 1 Thessalonians. And and it's this idea of I will be immovable in that in Jesus Christ. Three answers to the now what. Now, I just want to journey through the rest of this chapter for you because it plays out in a real way in our life. I really believe that that the gospel, if you allow it to take root in your life, that, that it begins to play out in a huge way in your life. It's not just something that you keep to yourself. It's not just something that you can tuck away and try to keep hidden. I don't believe that. When the gospel of Jesus Christ takes root in your life, there is something major that takes place in your life. And you are not the same person. Let's talk about that for just a few minutes. And it says this, knowing brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. And I just want to encourage you with that verse just before we jump into the rest of this. Be encouraged that you are loved by God. Be encouraged that I know I don't want to get into I chose or God chose. I don't want to get into that. Just read what that verse says about the church at Thessalonian, uh, the church of Thessalonians. It says, basically, knowing brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Would, that, would you today just allow that to speak rest into your life? That, that God, yes, has chosen you. There are things that he has chosen you for. There are things that he has specifically for you in this room. His choice of you. Now listen to what happens in the rest of this. Talking about the gospel taking root in your life and then watch how it's lived out. And you're going to see it all right here. We've already read it, but let's, let's pick back up verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only. Okay, that's the first description. Didn't come to you in word only. But now he gives three things, three things in specific about the gospel. The gospel. Let me, let me just, if you want to hear the gospel, the story, it's, it's basically the story of Jesus Christ that he came into the world, born of a virgin, lived in this world, ministered for about, did ministry for about three years, went to the cross, took the full weight and penalty of our sin in his body, on the tree. He was buried in the tomb. He rose again. I think we can agree on what the gospel is. And Paul writes that the gospel didn't come to you just with words. It didn't come to you with just words. And he says three things. It came to you, okay, also in power. Middle of verse 5. That's the first way it came to you. It came to you in power. The second way the gospel came was in the Holy Spirit. And in the Holy Spirit. The third way was with full conviction. So you're talking about the gospel being proclaimed. Now let's talk about this for just a minute because I think this is really important because we're talking about the now what in your life and as the gospel takes root, I'm telling you it's going to go forth. So there's three ways. It didn't come in word only, but it came in power. Now I know that you might be in this room today and you feel like the gospel hasn't come into your life with power. You didn't witness any major signs and wonders. You didn't witness um, somebody being brought back to life. You didn't witness that somebody was healed. Maybe a man born blind was healed. You've never witnessed any of that. 
You didn't witness any of the, the apostolic wonders that were taking place throughout the book of Acts. And you're sitting there going, I don't know that the gospel came in power. And I want to say, yes, it did. And while you and I may not have encountered those kinds of powerful things with the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'll say this. The gospel has come in power in your life, and it has caused you the greatest and most powerful thing of all to be born again. You see, the gospel has caused you to be born again. It has made you into a new creature. You're not the person that you used to be. Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that he, any man is in Christ. He is a new creature. Behold, all things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And it's the idea of absolutely you're wrong. The gospel did come into your life in power. And it came in the power of a changed life, in a changed heart, in a changed person. And friends, that's the greatest testimony that you have in all of your life. It's just simply that you are not the person that you used to be. That's power. And that's something, by the way, that nobody can refute, number one. And it's something, by the way, that word will spread about you in your relationship with Jesus Christ when the gospel comes in the power of a changed life. And it happens. You're going to see it. You're going to happen. That's the first thing. It comes in power. As it takes root in your life, it comes with power. The second thing it says, it comes with the Holy Spirit. I know, I love talking about the Holy Spirit. I'm Baptist too. But it's one of those things. I just love it. Because we are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, you as a follower of Jesus Christ, as one who has trusted in Jesus and Him alone for your salvation, and you've been given this new life in Christ, you have now, Jesus didn't say, okay, I'm going to give you new life, and guess what? Good luck! Sometimes that's what you get, isn't it? It's like, here, good luck! No! No, no, no! The Holy Spirit has come to take up residence. He has made a home in you. Not just like he's there. I mean, he has taken up residence in your life. You talk about the gospel coming in power, the power of the Holy Spirit in you. What a great picture of that. The Holy Spirit of God is living in your life. And guess what? In the case you haven't figured it out, you need the Holy Spirit. Because there's going to be times that you're, you're just going to sit there and you're just going to pray and pray and pray because you are trusting in the work of the Holy Spirit. There's going to be conversations that you're going to have with people and you're not going to know what to say. Absolutely, I don't know what to say, but I'm going to stop and I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to give me words. There's, it's just this beautiful relationship that you have with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your life. And that's part of the ways, one of the ways that the gospel has come with power. It's come in power, it's come in the Holy Spirit, and the third thing is it's come in full confidence. You see, the reality of the full confidence for us is, and I ask this to you, is how confident are you in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I mean, like, how confident are you in that? Like, that it drives you. I mean, confidence drives you. That idea of you know, you know that Jesus walked in this world. You know that he died on the cross. You know that he rose again. You know that he ascended into heaven. You know that he's coming back. Does that give you any kind of confidence? Like, I am going to be unshakable. I'm going to be immovable in my faith. Because, friends, the now what is that I am moving forward in full confidence in who he is. 
what he has accomplished, what he will accomplish, and the truth that he's coming back to get me. And we move forward, and we've got that confidence, and we are immovable, and we are unshakable in our approach. And then what, you know what happens? This is, this is the beauty of it. Your life basically goes forth. You think about that. You allow the gospel to take root in your life. You begin to have this work of faith, this labor of love, this steadfastness of hope. You've got those things going on in your life. You've got the, the, uh, the gospel. And you're changed. You're new. And you're doing these things that, man, they're not characteristic of you. Let's be honest. I mean, that idea of work of faith, that labor of, that's not characteristic of who you are. That's what? That's Jesus in you. And so then you get now, word's going to spread. Watch what happens in, in the Thessalonians. This is what I love about this. Um, um, you also, verse 6, became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. We talked about that. Verse 7. So that you, you might want to underline this verse, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So what's happening? You've got these other believers in other parts of the world and the, the life and what's happening in the church at Thessalonica has now been, become an example and a witness and an encouragement to these other believers. And Paul is sitting there going, he's going, I don't even have to say anything about you. They've heard about you. What's happened in your life and what's happened in your church has gone forth. The power of the gospel being rooted in your life, you with your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope, those things are going out into the world and they're an encouragement to the believers. It says this in verse 8, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. And listen, this sound has nothing to do with a preacher preaching. It has everything to do with believers living what they say they believe. And it said, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we, Paul is writing this, he's saying me and Silas and Timothy, we have no need to say anything. For they themselves, listen to this, our report about us, what kind of reception we had with you. But listen, that, forget about that. That's been great. They had a great reception. They welcomed Paul and Silas in. But listen to the next description in verse 9. And how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. See, the testimony, the testimony of the church at Thessalonica went forth. So it wasn't just a testimony of the fact that they came to faith in Christ amidst much tribulation. But now the other part of the testimony is this. You turned to God from idols. And that, friends, speaks volumes. A changed life. People who are living what they say they believe. People who are turning from what they used to believe to what they now believe in Jesus Christ. And their, their testimony of that has gone forth. The testimony has gone forth out into the world. And when I think about the now what, I think about the now what of the, the resurrection, now what Easter's over, now, the now what is let's live this out. The now what is, let's have this work of faith and this labor of love. Let's hold 
unwavering to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Let's get in the trenches and love people the way Jesus loved people. Let's serve people the way Jesus served people. Let's get out in the community and be difference makers, not just proclaimers and preachers of righteousness, but actually getting in there and building relationships with lost and dying people to influence them and make a difference for the glory of God and the sake of the kingdom. You talk about the now what? The now what isn't to withdraw. The now what isn't to go home and close our garage door. The now what isn't to retreat. No, the now what is to advance with the greatest story ever told for the greatest hope that we have to hold on to in our life. The now what is to be like Paul the Apostle who, yes, he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and he was blinded, but he didn't go back to an old way of life. He advanced and took the gospel to what he believed was the ends of the earth. The now what is to let's move forward for the glory of God. The now what is what in your life can you do as a labor of love? The now what is what is your work of faith? The now what is maybe you need to hold more firmly to the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. But there's a now what for you. Maybe the now what for you is that you need to turn to God, the living and true God from idols. Maybe you've placed those little g gods in your life And you've come to the place where it's time to turn away from those and serve the living and true God. What is the now what for you? Because there's something. It could be the work of faith. It could be the labor of love. It could be letting the gospel take root in your life. It could be turning to God. What is the now what? And would you have the boldness and the determination through the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish the now what? that he places before you. Let's pray. God, we are so humbled and grateful for your word that challenges us and instructs us. And God, I know in my life that you've been working in me and placing some now what's in front of me. And so God, I'm praying for me and my, my brothers and sisters in this room, God, that you would, you would teach us God, that you would put things intentionally, strategically in our life. God, that force us to answer the questions of the now what. Now what, that we have a relationship with you. Now what, that we've been challenged and instructed and empowered to take Jesus to the world. Now what? God, be relentless in your pursuing that in our life. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask if you would to stand with me. If the, today that you want to spend any time praying, Josh and I are down front. We'd love to pray with you. If you're struggling with things in your life, maybe, maybe you know there's some now what's that God's already begun to work. Then I'm just asking, come forward and let's talk about it. Let's pray about it. Don't leave here with an unsettled spirit. It might be that you've got to deal with it where you're at, and I'm okay with that too, but don't leave here with an unsettled spirit as we sing together, Glorious Day.